Amen. Thank you so much, Lindsay and Sherlan. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. That is to be the prayer of the church. With your Bible in your hand, would you please turn to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. We will begin reading chapter 1 in just a moment. We've come close. Next Lord's Day, we will finish our summer sermon series that's been focused on the person and work of Jesus Christ. We've seen that Jesus is God's final word, that God has spoken and He has spoken perfectly through His Son. And because Christ is God's final word, we preach Christ and we worship Christ and we build our worship around Christ. We saw that in the foundation of our series and then we shifted our attention to various uh, doctrinal truths about our Savior. Christ as our mediator, Christ as our righteousness, Christ as cursed for us. Christ, the one who is our exalted Lord. Christ, who is the one who is supreme above all. And we saw that these are not just facts to store away for your next Bible trivia night. Because of who Christ is and what Christ has done, we're to live differently. It's to make an impact in our lives when we understand who Jesus is and what He has done for us. Because we live in a world that has many pet versions of Jesus, but we dare not miss what the Bible says about Jesus. Many people will say that they love Jesus, but in fact they have a preferred version of Jesus. Many like cute little baby Jesus. You know Him. He's lying in a manger and He's sweet and innocent and He looks really cute on the bookshelf for a couple of weeks there in December. But sweet little babies don't demand anything from us. They certainly don't demand to be Lord of all. Others prefer philosopher Jesus. Jesus the sage. Jesus who gives out lots of good advice. Jesus who had many pearls of wisdom. And of course their favorite saying of our philosopher Jesus is, Judge not, lest ye be judged. But as we're going to see this morning, the philosopher who said this is coming back, and he's coming as the perfect judge. Well, still others like to think of Jesus as bloody, bleeding Jesus. He's the Jesus of crucifixes and paintings, but he's forever frozen in agony and helplessness. Now you know as you hear me say these things that there's truth in all of these portrayals of Jesus. As my professor helped drill into my head, it's not that there's something wrong with these portrayals of Jesus. It's just that they're so outdated. Because Jesus is no longer that baby in a manger today. Jesus is not walking around Galilee dispensing wisdom today. He's not hanging bloody and beaten on a Roman cross today. When we come to Revelation chapter 1, we see an updated picture of our ascended Lord. We learn a lot about our soon coming King right here in Revelation chapter 1. So if you found your place in God's Word, would you stand with me as we read Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near." 
John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom, Priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands are one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Brothers and sisters, may we not only be blessed by hearing and reading this book, but by keeping it as well. You may be seated as I pray. Almighty God, the God who is and who was and who is to come, we come to Your powerful Word with hearts ready to understand and ready to obey. Make Your Word plain for our understanding and increase our desire and our ability to obey. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. The last book of the Bible the Revelation is one of the most strongly neglected books of the Bible. Preachers don't preach it, and the people don't read it. After all, there's so much that we don't understand, right? Well, I'm thankful that that's not the case here at Ramah. I'm grateful for those of our Sunday school teachers who have, have taught and are teaching through this blessed book. Now, I don't claim to understand it all, but I do understand enough to preach the point of the book, and that is Christ Himself. You see, it begins, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
It's the apocalypse of Jesus, the revealing, the unveiling of Jesus by Jesus. This is the picture of Christ that we're supposed to have in our minds. God has given it to us Himself. God gave this book to Christ to show His servants the things that must soon take place. And Christ made it known by sending His angel to the servant John. And John, who is our brother and our partner in the tribulation and in the kingdom and in the patient endurance that is in Jesus, John received this vision on the Lord's Day, on a Sunday, when he was cast away on the island of Patmos, but he was caught in the Spirit, and the Lord gave him this vision. And he told John to write what he saw in a book and to send it to seven churches. You heard the names of those seven churches. But we know that those weren't the only churches at that time. And it's clear when we read this book that Christ had a specific message for those seven churches, of course. But those seven churches are also standing in for all the church of all the ages. And so there's something very important for us as well to understand in this book. Much more can be said about the apocalypse, about the revelation of Jesus Christ. But let us make haste to get to the heart of the book. Let's fix our attention upon Christ. Because after all, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ about Jesus Christ. We're going to move to the middle of verse 4, and we see that familiar greeting that we see so often in the New Testament. The greeting that begins so many of our gatherings. Grace to you and peace. Ah, but where does this grace come from? Where does this peace come from? It comes from Him who is, and who was, and who is to come. This greeting of grace and peace comes from our eternal God. The God who has no beginning and no end. But you see, John's description doesn't begin in eternity past. He doesn't put this description in chronological order. He doesn't say Him who was, and who is, and who is to come. He puts it in that order in a different place, but here he says, grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come. The emphasis is that this gracious, peaceful greeting is from the eternal God who is still God. He is still the God who is the God of the present. You see, the Jews of old and the first century church and today's church we're often quick to agree that God was active in the past. He's the God who was. And we're also very quick to say we know that He's in charge at some point going forward in the future. We know that He is the God who is to come. But sometimes we're not so sure about the present. Sometimes we're not so sure that God is still actively in charge of the present. Sometimes we wonder if God is still leading our lives and leading our church. The Christians in John's day, and John himself, had reasons to wonder if God was still active in their lives. You see, they had survived that terrible emperor Nero. We've talked about Nero before, the one who lit his gardens at night with the flaming bodies of Christians. And they had survived the reign of Nero, but now they were dealing with that despicable, despot Domitian. And Domitian made Nero look like a schoolgirl. So they had great cause to wonder if God was still actively involved in their lives. 
Were things really going according to God's plan for their lives? John himself had been exiled as an old man, left to die on a pile of rock called Patmos. So John emphasizes this is the God who is. He is presently, currently God. He has not abdicated. He has not been overthrown. One preacher of old commented, in the terrible days in which he was writing, John stayed his heart on the changelessness of God and used the defiance of grammar to underline his faith. Grace to you and peace from Him who is, who was, and is to come. But this grading is not from God the Father alone. The text also says, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne. The greeting is from God the Father, but it's also from God the Spirit. But it doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is divisible, or that He's made up of seven smaller parts. Now think with me, remember, how many churches is John writing to? He's writing to seven. And how many spirits is this greeting coming from? Seven. So the point of all of this is, is that every church has the fullness of the Spirit poured out on Him. Have you ever thought about that? That God pours out His Spirit fully, without measure, on every local church. God is not stingy, and God is not on a budget. He doesn't have to allocate a portion of His Spirit to Ramah, and a portion of His Spirit to Palmetto Baptist, and a portion of His Spirit to Sardis. God's Spirit is poured out in full, without measure, on every local church. And that's a glorious truth right here in this greeting, but that's not all. He says, grace to you and peace from God the Father, and God the Spirit, and God the Son. Look at verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. Not many of you are lawyers, but most of you have watched lawyers on television. We enjoy a good legal thriller, and we know how frustrating it can be when a key witness does not show up. It can be even worse for the witness to show up and not say what they're supposed to say. Jesus is the faithful witness. He's the witness who always shows up, and He always tells the truth. Jesus is the faithful witness, and He's the firstborn from the dead. Now we saw this language last week in Colossians chapter 1. We saw that Christ is the first whose resurrection was permanent. All other resuscitations ended in death again. Christ raised Lazarus, but Lazarus died again. And Christ raised Jairus' daughter, but she died again. But Jesus was raised, and He lives forevermore. And oh dear friend, Jesus Christ is the firstborn from the dead, but He will certainly not be the last. Jesus was raised by God, and He was ascended into the heavens. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, and Christ is taking all who repent of their sins and trust in Christ. He's taking us with Him. He's the firstborn from the dead, but He is most certainly not the last. Jesus Christ is the faithful witness he is the firstborn of the dead, and He's the foremost ruler among all the kings of this earth. 
You say, somebody forgot to tell them that, preacher. The kings of this earth don't act like they're accountable to God. They don't govern as if they've been placed in that position of authority to serve our Creator God. Exactly. That's why it's important that we read this book. That's why it's important that we read the book more than we watch the news. It's why it's important that we refer to the good news far more often than we turn to breaking news. We can take a moment to catch up on what's going on in the world around us, but we must spend more time knowing about the One who reigns above us. Christ is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. When we read the book of Revelation, we can't help but understand that God is emphatically sovereign over the kings of this earth. And if you want to know what happens to them, well, be sure to come back next Lord's Day as we turn to Revelation 19 and see what happens to them. But this Trinitarian greeting from God the Father, God the Spirit, it climaxes in the work of God the Son, Jesus Christ, who is faithful, He is first, and He is foremost. And when John expounds the deity of Christ, he erupts in doxology to Christ. The greeting gives way to praise. As John says, to Him who loves us, there in the middle of verse 5, to Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and has made us a kingdom, priest to His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Christ has loved us. And He loves us now. And He will love us for all of eternity. And He has demonstrated His love for us by freeing us from our sins. By loosing us from our sins. We who were captive and in bondage to our sins like a slave forever anchored to an immovable rock. Christ loosed us from our chains. He set us free from our bondage to sin. How did He do it? By his blood. He made peace by the blood of His cross. Dear saints, if that was all that Christ ever did, we would have more than enough to praise Him for. If that was all that Christ did, if He only loosed us from our sins, that would be enough to sing His praises while ages roll. But that's not all. That's not all that Christ did. Christ didn't just free us, but He also has made us. He made us a kingdom, priests to His God and Father. You see, our King has welcomed us into the kingdom, and He's invited us to reign with Him. He's made us a kingdom, but He's also made us priests to His God and Father. By His blood... Christ has secured our adoption into the family of God. But we get to be servants of God, priests to His God and Father. We who were far off, we who could not draw near, not only has Christ broken down the barrier, and He's broken it down and removed it for us as our Savior, but now we can draw near and we can serve our great God. Christ has saved us. Christ has made us. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Hallelujah. What a Savior. But the praise of Christ leads to the promise of Christ. The praise leads to the promise. And we see that here in verse 7. 
You see, John reminds the church that not only is Christ worthy of praise, Christ is coming to receive that praise, whether it's freely given or whether it's given by force. You see, in verse 7, we get the image of Jesus, Jesus as He is, Jesus as He will be, the image that the world does not want to see, the image that much of the church does not see. Verse 7 gives us the promise of Christ's coming, but Christ is coming as judge. Verse 7, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, Amen. This is the message of the book. You want to know what the book of Revelation is all about? Christ is coming. Christ is coming with the clouds. This is clearly pointing back to what we heard earlier from Daniel chapter 7. The vision of the Son of Man coming in the clouds and standing before the Ancient of Days, God the Father. But here in John's vision, the Son of Man is coming in the clouds and He's bringing judgment with Him. When Christ ascended in Acts chapter 1, the angel announced, this Jesus whom you see being taken up before your very eyes, He is coming again and He will come in like manner. He ascended in the clouds and He will return in the clouds. Now this is not the rapture that is being referred to here. I believe that doctrine. I've preached that doctrine to you. But that's not what is being referred to here. The rapture is a rescue mission. But this is His return in Judgment. He's coming in the clouds, and every eye will see Him. Now we live on a globe. So you ask, Pastor, how is that possible that every eye will see Him all at one time? I have no idea, but I trust that God can handle it and figure it out. Okay? The text says He's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Every eye shall see our Savior and His return, even those who have rejected Him. Even His ancient people, Israel, they rejected Him and they pierced Him. Here, John takes the vision of Daniel. He adds the vision of Zechariah. But now he's telling us that not only will Israel see their true Messiah, unbelieving Israel will see and understand but so will all the tribes of the earth. All who have rejected Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior will see Him coming in the clouds, and they will immediately know that judgment is at hand. You see, they have no grace, and they have no peace. They failed to repent when you shared the gospel with them. They came to church but they never truly trusted Christ. They said, I'll get it all right with God when I'm old, right before I die, and that day came too quickly. One look at our soon coming King, and they will begin to wail. What did Lindsay sing earlier? Deeply wailing. Deeply wailing on account of the one who was pierced and nailed to the tree. You say, Pastor, I don't like this image of Christ as judge. I didn't realize that this passage was talking about judgment. Well, we've got the snapshot here in verse 7. 
But as we go down to verses 12 and following, we get a high-resolution image. Move down to verse 12 and following. John writes, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. In verse 13, And in the midst of the lampstands are one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Now we don't have to wonder about the lampstands, because Jesus tells us in verse 20, did you, did you hear that when I read it earlier? He tells us that the lampstands are the churches. And just as the church has the Spirit in full, we see also that Christ is in the midst of His church. And once again, this language from Daniel chapter 7 is important because John explicitly refers to Christ as the Son of Man, the one who is fully God and fully man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, clothed with what must be a white robe. Because you see, in Daniel 7, the Ancient of Days, God the Father is clothed in pure white. But here we see Christ robed like a royal dignitary. He's wearing a long robe with a golden sash around His chest. He's not wearing the carpenter's apron anymore that He wore in Nazareth. He's wearing the golden sash of a king. He's not wearing the purple robe of Calvary. He's wearing the right white robe of heaven. Our soon coming King is glorious in appearance. Verse 14 says, the hairs of His head were white, like white wool, like snow. And again, we see the Son of Man looking just like the Ancient of Days. The Son of Man has the white hair that is befitting His purity and His wisdom and His splendor. Not only that, but he, he has eyes that are like a flame of fire. He sees all things. And He knows all things. And this means that as judge, He can make correct, accurate judgments quickly. His omniscient eyes are like a flame of fire. Verse 15 says, His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. Christ as like a strong soldier prepared for battle. He's moving quickly through His church. He can chasten His church, and He can crush His enemies. John writes, His voice was like the roar of many waters. Now the prophet Ezekiel described the voice of Almighty God, God the Father, as being like the sound of many waters. So once again, John describes to us Jesus as being fully God. When John speaks, excuse me, when Jesus speaks, His voice is so loud, the only thing that John can compare it to is the sound of many waters. The sound of the waves crashing onto Patmos. We might liken it to the sound of Niagara Falls or Victoria Falls. What a magnificent vision of our soon coming King. This is a vision of strength and power. It's a far cry from the soft, effeminate Jesus that permeates so much of Christianity today. Christ is all-powerful, all-glorious, and all-deserving of our submission and our worship. But John sees even more. Look at verse 16. In his right hand, he held seven stars. 
Again, we don't have to wonder what's going on here because Jesus tells us that the seven stars are the seven messengers of the seven churches. And that means that not only has He got the whole world in His hands, He's got the church in His hands, and He's got the church's leaders in His hands. What more comfort could we need? But Christ gives us more. Keep looking at our King. It says, from His mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. Now this is not some grotesque image that we should attempt to literally draw up in our minds. You see, the sword was the chief sign of, Romans, of Rome's strength. Weapons are the sign of the strength of any power. But we're told all the way back in the prophet Isaiah, we're told that our king doesn't rely on earthly weapons to defeat his enemies. No, it says he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And from the mouth of our king comes the very words of God which are sharper than any two-edged sword. God's Word stands forever. And Christ speaks, and His Word accomplishes what He desires. Next Lord's Day, we're going to see just how powerful God's Word is over all those kings of the earth that He's ruler over. We'll see how swift is His judgment that He simply speaks from His mouth. From his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When Moses saw the face of God, when Moses saw the glory of God, Moses' face glowed temporarily. And when Jesus gave just a glimpse of his glory in the transfiguration, his face shone with full glory, but it was only temporary. But here, Christ's face shines full strength as He is displayed in all of His glory. What a vision of Christ. Is this how you think of Jesus? This isn't baby Jesus in a manger. This isn't poor, whipped Jesus on the cross. This is powerful, masculine Jesus coming to judge those who pierced Him, those who rejected Him. This is the revelation of Christ about Christ. He tells us that He's coming, and He's coming as a glorious judge. How do we respond to all of this? How did John respond when he saw Jesus? Verse 17 says, When I saw Him, I fell at His feet as though dead. Poor John. If he had only lived today, he would have known that that much reverence is not necessary. John could have simply danced before Jesus. Maybe he could have given Jesus a high five up top or pointed to his Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt. No, John wasn't caught up in frivolity. John was caught up in fear. John experienced what Isaiah experienced in the year that King Uzziah died. And Isaiah saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and lifted up. Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now hear me carefully. I'm not saying we have to tremble in terror every time we worship our King. But could it be just possibly, that we have underestimated our King? Could it be that we have taken Him too lightly? 
Could it be that we have failed to understand our Savior in the way that Isaiah understood Him, and John understood Him, and Peter understood Him, and Moses understood Him? But here's the good news. When we rightly understand our glorious King, He doesn't leave us in our fear and our trembling. Because the judge is also comforter. Keep looking at the verse. It says, But He laid His right hand on me. The same right hand that is holding the churches and holding its leaders. He laid His right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Our soon coming King... Our glorious King, the faithful witness says, fear not. How many times in His earthly ministry did Jesus tell someone to fear not? How many times in the Bible are we told to be not afraid? At least 365 times. Over and over we're told to fear not. And even in this heavenly vision, Christ is comforting His people and He comforts with the truth. He says, I am the first and the last. He's eternal. God declared Himself back in verse 8 to be the Alpha and the Omega, the A to Z. All things begin and end with the Father, but so too do all things begin and end with the Son. Christ, too, is the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He is the Alpha and Omega, the A to Z of all things. He's the living one. That may not sound like much to you because we're all living. But keep reading. He says, I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Yes, Jesus died. Yes, He was crucified. Yes, He hung beaten and bloody on a Roman cross, but that's not where He is today. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. You see, on the third day, God raised him from the dead. God rolled the stone away from that borrowed tomb. And Jesus ascended into the heavens to be seated at the right hand of the Father. He is alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Death and the grave. Death and the place of the dead. So John and the church in his day, they were, they were tempted to fear the emperor and to fear death. Things have gotten pretty bad. But our soon coming King says, fear not. We need not fear death because Christ died, but He's alive forevermore. All who trust Him will live with Him forever. He holds the keys. He has access to life eternal. He is the only one who has defeated death and the grave, and so we fear not. What's the message of Revelation chapter 1? Christ is coming. He's coming as the eternal, glorious judge. But He holds the keys to death and the grave. Therefore, we fear not. We fear not. So how do we respond to this true vision of Jesus? The vision that Jesus Himself gave for us to understand about Jesus? Well, first, I, I must sound the warning that this passage contains. 
You see, if you continue to reject Jesus and you fail to bow the knee to Christ as Lord, when He appears, you will join the multitudes deeply wailing. Because He is the eternal judge with with eyes of flaming fire. That means your sins have not gone unnoticed. He sees and He knows. and All will be revealed in the end. But Christ stands ready to save you, to loose you from your sins by His own blood. If you will repent and turn to Christ today, then you too can hear the Savior say, Fear not. But for the saints of God, dear believer, how should we respond? When we look at the chaos and the sin in this world around us, we remember our soon coming King. Because Christ is ruler over all the kings of this earth, whether they know it or not. Do you wonder if all the sins in this world will go unpunished? Does your heart cry out for justice? Look to the eternal, glorious judge of Revelation chapter 1. Christ is coming. But what about your own life? What about those sins that were committed against you? Grievous sins. Sins that still continue to have an impact on your life each and every day. And each passing day, you cry out deep from within, How long, O Lord? How long until you return and make all things right? Revelation 1 reminds us that Jesus sees and Jesus knows. Nothing has escaped His notice. He is coming as the powerful judge to deal with every single instance of sin. What about those times that you've been misrepresented, misunderstood, perhaps at work or even by your own family? Are you supposed to just pretend that it didn't happen? Should you be consumed by it? Jesus sees. Jesus knows. He knows when we're faithful, and He knows when we failed, and He's coming. He's coming to make all things right. Christ is coming. Does this cause you Comfort or concern? Christ is coming. Are you ready? Or will you join the wailing on that day? Christ is coming. And so we join the echo saying, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray.